Mark chapter 7. As you know, we're in the midst of a series called New Beginnings, and so we're going back to the beginning so that we can gain confidence in our faith. We can gain confidence in this mission uh, that Jesus Christ has called us to. And so our theme this fall is on mission, and since it is the 8.30 service, I find that I have to have you participate a little bit more uh, than the second service, and uh, Harvest Myerstown, you as well. Uh, Would you just repeat with me, on mission. Our theme is on mission, and we've learned this. Being on mission can be painful. Being on mission takes persistence. We learned last week as well that the heart of the mission is a mission for the heart, and so uh, the mission's about purity. It's about purity of the heart, and now this week we're on this. We're here to find confidence on the pursuit, on the pursuit, say pursuit, on the pursuit of the mission. So let me start with a question. Uh, What are you pursuing? When I think about the word pursuit, uh, I immediately think of our Declaration of Independence. You know it, right? We, we were, uh, our founders uh, uh, declared out that we have some unalienable rights, right? You guys know them? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Anyone here um, spend any time pursuing happiness in their life? For sure. I'll be the first to admit that if I'm going to spend my time pursuing something, uh, higher on the list are those things that I find make me happy, those things that bring me joy, those things um, that, that um, don't make me weep. And so uh, what makes me happy? Penn State winning a football game makes me happy. And so my son and I were pursuing that last night and... Um, I tucked in a very sad young man, and then when I was realized I hadn't put my son to bed, I went then to him. (laughs) And apologized profusely, and then we prayed. What makes me happy? Riding Harley-Davidson motorcycles makes me happy. Uh, What makes me happy? I'm a nerd, so reading books makes me happy. I love to pursue another good book. Uh, Leadership principles. I love coming across leadership principles and sitting under the tutelage of other good leaders. These kind of things uh, make me happy for sure. Mowing my yard fires me up happy. You know, with all of these things that I pursue that make me happy, here's um, what I've come to realize. Out of all the things that I pursue, the pursuits that make me the happiest are the pursuits that pursue me back. Out of all the pursuits that I have toward happiness, the pursuits that make me the happiest are the pursuits that pursue me back. Do you catch all that? Out of all the pursuits that I pursue, the pursuits that make me the happiest are the pursuits that pursue me back. For example, I love pursuing my wife. 17 years, and I still have the privilege to date and to pursue my wife. Like, she's my favorite person in all of the world. I just want to make sure that I continue to be hers. And sometimes it's a simple smile. And it's all the little things that she does that reminds me that she enjoys my pursuit and that she still desires after me. I love pursuing after my boys. Uh, Most times that pursuit usually just kind of entails uh, me keeping them from harming themselves, uh, keeping them from breaking their legs and eating the dog food and just the normal things uh, that little boys do. But I got to be, as I'm pursuing after my kids, there's something that makes me incredibly happy about coming home from work and having all four of these boys gang tackle me. Anyone? You see, the pursuits that make us the happiest are the pursuits that pursue us back. And I want you to think about this. Have you stopped to consider that we serve a God who's in pursuit? 
Have you stopped to consider recently that our God is a pursuing God, that our God delights in the activity of pursuit, that our God has pursued us, and that he actually finds great delight because his scriptures tell us so when we, his people, pursue him back? Our God has pursued us, 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God has made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this, having been pursued, if we seek the Lord, we will find him when we seek him with all of our heart. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And so when we start talking about the mission, when we get on this idea of being on mission, the thing that I want us to come across and what I want us to grasp ever so firmly is there is no one who has pursued harder. There's no one who's come after more strongly There's been no greater missionary to ever walk this earth than Jesus Christ himself. No one's traveled as far as Jesus, and no one's ever given what Jesus gave. And so Jesus came on mission. Jesus came on mission. We're finding in the gospel of Mark that Jesus Christ came on mission to redeem us so that we can be on mission with him. Catch it? Jesus came on mission to redeem us so that we can be on mission with him. Jesus came for us so that we can be with him. He came on mission to us so that we can now be on mission with him. So now the question becomes not merely are you on mission? The more pertinent question now becomes are we, are you on mission with, 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 say with, now say it again, with Jesus. Are are we on mission with Jesus? Are we pursuing this mission with him? Are we submitting to Christ's leadership as we go about our lives? Are we willing to follow the example and to go after the least of these and to spread the gospel and to go into all the world as he commanded? Are we willing to do it with Jesus? And so if you're ready to pursue this mission with Jesus, are you ready to pursue this mission with Jesus? Say, let's go. All right, here we go. Mark chapter 7. Here's what I have for you today. Four evidences that we are uh, pursuing the mission with Jesus. Four evidences that we are pursuing the mission with Jesus. So to pursue this mission with Jesus, let me give you a good old-fashioned missionary point. A good old-fashioned missionary point because we're on mission. If you want to be pursuing the mission with Jesus, we need then to be willing to engage the nations. If we want to be on mission with Jesus, we need then to be willing to engage the nations. Right about this point as a kid, this is where the people came down the aisles with the flags. Somebody would then say something to the effect of, is there anywhere that you're unwilling to go? Won't you come and stand by one of these flags? Look at the text. And from there, where's there? From there is Capernaum. Uh, From there is Peter's uh, hometown. From there is a really comfortable place. Uh, From there is a place where the ministry and the mission was going forth in an incredible way. Uh, You'll know uh, from there, the the region of Galilee, if you take the whole region as a whole, you'll remember, like, he just fed 5,000 people. The crowds, the masses are coming all around him. Like, if we're going to start a movement, like, let's just stay put. But rather, Jesus comes up out of this comfortable place, out of this place where he's feeling the big mo of momentum. And from there, he arose. 
And he went away to another region. What region is he going to go to? He's going to go to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's going to go to the region of Tyre and Sidon. If I, and if you were among the disciples and you were among uh, the first century Jews, when I said the, the region of Sidon and Tyre, you would go, <gasps> so let's just go ahead and do that. Um, so Jesus then arose and he went to the region of Sidon and Tyre. And you would say, wasn't bad, actually. Know this. They weren't going to be in Kansas anymore. A tornado of fury may not have taken them there, but one might send them home from there for sure. Like, this is enemy territory. They're going into ground uh, that, that geographically really doesn't make sense. This is way, 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 way way, I would make you say way, but I've already made you say too many things, way beyond their comfort zone. Have you been out of your comfort zone recently? Jesus, in training his disciples, seemed to be in the habit of taking them out of their comfort zones rather regularly. And so here they come. They come up into enemy territory, this, this city of Tyre. It's got a long history of oppression to Israel. You may remember Queen Jezebel was there, and many prophets arose and even prophesied against her. And this was, this was a region that just historically was known. This is not a place you ought to go. This was the Nineveh of Jesus' day. You all familiar with the story of Jonah? You remember how Jonah responded when God said, go to Nineveh? Remember how he responded? What did he do? He did what? He ran the other way, didn't he? Well, while Jonah may have run the other way, Jesus set his GPS right down to downtown Paganville. And the disciples, if I'm one of the disciples at this point, I'm like, really? Like, what are we doing here? What in the world are we doing here? Look at this map. If you look at the map, you'll notice... There's the Sea of Galilee. Look all the way up to the farthest point on the map. You see Tyre? That's about 35 miles out of the way. Uh, I learned from Pastor Jared this week that on average, the average person can walk about 20 miles a day or so. So this is quite a journey. You, you'll notice that there's really, it's not like he's like, well, I'm going to stop off in Tyre on my way to the, uh, I don't know, the, okay, I'm just going there. There is no good logical explanation up to this point why Jesus would take his disciples up to Tyre. Except that he's training his disciples for the coming mission. Except for he's training his disciples for the coming mission. You know what's in Tyre, right? You know what's entire. Pagans are entire. You know what's entire, right? Gentiles, meaning people who aren't Jews, are entire. You see, the day is coming when the Gentiles will be fully grafted in to the promise that was granted unto Israel. And how better way to show them how this is all going to work and that he's going to be able to actually embrace those than for him to take his disciples himself to this region. And so he gets there. And so he rose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. I think you have the context now. And, and so he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet, yet he could not be hidden. And so Jesus goes all the way up to Tyre, way out of his way. He goes all the way there. He goes there and he doesn't want anyone to know. Why? Well, there are a couple logical explanations for sure. Uh, do you remember how for a couple of chapters now, Jesus has been uh, kind of promising or appealing to his disciples, let us go to a desolate place? Perhaps Jesus is finally getting a little R&R &R on the Mediterranean Sea, like a little Mediterranean getaway. How many feel like that sounds really good right now? And so could it be that he's actually finally getting away with his disciples and they're going to get some rest and they're going to find a home and he takes them into enemy... Wait, what? 
You think, wait. Is there anything to be learned over the fact that Jesus seems to find rest in the strangest of places? Is there anything to be learned that Jesus seems to find rest or seek it, if you will, in the most, I don't know, treacherous of places. I mean, first, first we have him falling asleep in the middle of a storm, in a boat, out to sea, being tossed to and fro. He's, he's sleeping deeply. I was going to say sawing logs. I wasn't sure if that was appropriate. Like, he's sleeping deeply is what the text makes us believe. And his, like, come on, get up. And now here you have him in the middle of Sin City. Like, this is the Las Vegas of our day trying to get a little private time. Hear me. There is no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. There is no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. And by, by safe here, I don't mean no harm will ever come upon you. By safe here, I mean secure. By safe here, I mean spiritually secure, knowing that you're right where God wants you and, and to live as Christ and to, and to die as gain. But I know I'm where God wants me and I know where God needs me and I can sleep tonight because I know. What's there to be learned about finding rest in what seems to be in treacherous places but this? It's that our safety is not a matter of personal security. It's a matter of providential sovereignty. Our safety is not a matter of personal security. It's a matter of providential sovereignty. If you want to be on mission, and to truly be on mission with Jesus is to believe, it is to grasp, it is to brand within the depth of your soul the reality of the sovereignty of God, that he really is above it all. You see, when you believe that God's in control, when you believe that God is writing the script, when you believe that God knows the end from the beginning, when you, know, when you believe that God has a plan for you, when you believe that you are part of God's mission yourself, there's no place you won't go. There's no conversation that you won't be willing to have. There's no person, no matter how powerful or dangerous, that you won't be willing to approach. There'll be no situation that you'll have to fear to the place of a crippling. For our God is with us, and God was with his disciples, and they could walk into the center of a region that was known as the enemy and the adversary, because why? Jesus was with them. Do you sense that the Lord is with you? I would say this, there's no safer place and there's no greater measure of security that can come over your soul than to know that you're living your life on mission for Jesus. For God is a pursuing God and God pursues after us and he loves it when we pursue back him. As a husband delights in the gaze of his wife, so does our God delight in the affections of his people. As a father longs to be kind of gang-tackled with the attention of his children, so too does our God long for the worship of his church. Is he with you, church? Is he with you? Is he with you? Are you in God's word? Are you praying? Are you coming into his presence on a regular basis? Are you starting your day and saying, Lord God, I need your help today and I need your presence today and I want to be on mission with you today. And I'm telling you, if you put yourself in vulnerable places for the gospel, he will be there. And you will sense his presence in a manifested way. And some of you are like, I don't know if God's here. I haven't felt his presence in a long time. To you, I would say, step out. Step out in faith. Is there any place that you aren't willing to go for the sake of Jesus Christ and his gospel? Is there any place to where, to any person with whom you wouldn't speak? Is there any 
You see, to be on mission is to engage the nations. What's Jesus modeling here? He's modeling this. There's a mission that's coming. What you know what it is. Go ye therefore into all the world. You will be my witnesses, Acts 1.8, into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And up until this moment, we, we've seen him minister in Judea. We've seen him heal or speak with the Samaritan woman at the well, pardon me. And now here Jesus is modeling his, for his disciples the outermost parts of the earth. Jesus is on mission. Jesus is on mission, and he's training his disciples to be on mission with him. You want to be on mission with Jesus? We've got to engage the nations. We've got to engage the nations. We've got to answer this question. Is there anywhere or anyone to whom I won't go? In God's strength, we shall not fear. Here's the second thing. To be on mission with Jesus is then to elevate God's children. We'll care for and we'll elevate God's children So Jesus enters the house. Take a look at the text here. And he entered the house, back half of verse 24, and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But, 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 but now immediately, but immediately, you remember that word immediately, 36 times uh, Mark is going to use the word immediately. If you're taking notes and you just like curious things, know this is the 27th time Mark has used the word immediately. You think he's trying to show Jesus on mission? You think he's trying to show that Jesus is about the action of doing? You think he's showing that he's going about the work of God? And so now immediately, the 27th immediately, as a matter of fact, that's come out of this gospel, uh, what happens immediately? A woman, um, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. I wonder how she heard of him. I mean, this is a long way away from where all the hustle and bustle has been and where all of his fame has beginning to go forth. But if you remember from, I don't know, chapter 3, verse 7, when he healed uh, the man with the withered hand, you remember that? Uh, there, it actually says in the text that there were people there from Tyre. There were actually people there from Tyre and Sidon. So what did they do? What did they do? They probably went back and they shared about what they saw. And so Jesus comes rolling into town. He goes into a house. He doesn't want anyone to know. And they're like, oh, no, I know who this guy is. This, whole, this word immediately makes it seem like, like he sat down. You ever have that moment? You sit down. <sighs> I'm imagining the disciples right now like, finally. Donk, 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 donk. Hello? Not housekeeping. Come on in. I don't think she was asking. You get the sense here that she barged right in. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down. And I want you to notice how she came to him. She came with urgency, didn't she? She came with a sense of urgency. She came with a sense of desperation. She came urgently. She came desperately. Why was she desperate? Her daughter's possessed by a demon, and she knows Jesus can take care of it. And then, look, she comes reverently. She falls at his feet. Have you had a moment like this recently? It's an urgency and anxiousness comes over your spirit. There's a problem in front of you that you can't solve. And you're wringing your hands and you don't know what to do. And then it occurs to you, maybe Jesus can, maybe Jesus can, maybe Jesus can. And then you fall upon your face and, you, and you've cried out to the Lord. Um, how many of us have had the first two points but not the third recently? But here, this woman in the middle of Tyre, a, very, a woman who it's very unlikely that she would come before a Jewish rabbi. It's very unlikely that she would come before a Jewish rabbi. What's happening here is incredibly unprecedented. Look at the text. And now the woman was a Gentile. <gasps> 
a Syrophoenician by birth, my gasp just went to a, ugh. She would have known, she would have known how improbable and how countercultural it was for her to come before Jesus in this moment. But she didn't care. She didn't care. She didn't care. Why didn't she care? Because mama don't care if babies are hurt. Let the, let the social stigma be what it is. Let, 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 let her fellow Seraphonicians come on her. Come at her. How dare you go before a Jew and ask for help? And so she comes persistently. She comes persistently, then urgently, desperately, reverently, now persistently. And we learn from Matthew 15, a cross-reference text, that she begs, she begs, she begs, she begs him. She begs him, and you may find it a little bit of surprise that Jesus doesn't, doesn't respond to her right away. And because she's a, a, a Seraphonician, you also might be surprised at this. The, the disciples are like, come on, get her out of here. Just go, get her out of here. And this is usually the time, this is usually the part in the Bible story where Jesus comes along, and he kind of sets the record straight, and he says this soft and gentle thing, Right? Don't you feel like you've heard that kind of story? I feel like I've read that one a lot. Well, get your offensometer ready. Because you might be surprised about what Jesus says next. In a world where ears are very, very sensitive, I think at first glance, at first glance, uh, you're going to listen to this next sentence. You're going to be like, I cannot believe this. And you're going to want to gasp. So get ready to gasp with me because I think it's gaspable. Here it comes. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And Jesus says to the woman who's begged him to heal, to cast out the demon in his daughter, he, she, he, he looks to her and he says, look, let the children eat first, for it is not right to take their bread and throw it to their dogs. Gasp with me. <gasps> like a fence is like high alert right now. Like this, just, I'm just going to tell you, just, just to be very forthright with you, like this is not a verse that makes the Hallmark card. This may actually be one of the least quoted verses in all of the New Testament. And um, I would tell you that many communicators and many teachers would really love to just kind of run right past this verse. Some of us may just like to pretend like it's, like it's not even there. Like, well, I, I, let's, just get, let's just move on. I'm sure good things come after the next few verses. So let's just. But you know that's not right, right? You know that all of God's word is, all of the Bible is God's breathed. You know that it's inerrant. You know that it's perfect. You know that it was written, all of it, all of it, all of it, all of it for our instruction. And so we got to lean right into this and say, Lord, help me understand. Illuminate these scriptures for me. Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It 
if we run too fast to the explanation that we won't live with the angst long enough to realize that God's Word is incredibly profound. And if we run too fast to the answer to this, we'd be remiss not to make the point that it's worth digging into on our own and asking God to reveal. And I think as you would dig into it, what your studies would reveal to you is that Jesus is speaking parabolically. I think what you'd realize is that I don't believe that Jesus is being condescending here at all. I think it'd be very, very helpful for you to realize that the Greek word here for dogs is actually little dogs. Uh, the, The Greek word for dogs here is actually little dogs. It's actually the word that you and I would probably use for puppies. Now that's gotta make you feel better. Who doesn't love a puppy? It's not good to throw the bread. I think it's really important when we're looking at the text to ask ourselves, uh, what do the people who are in the story, how do they respond? How do they, before I get offended, before I get all twisted up, before I kind of go, go off on a tangent on this, how do the people in the room, if you will, how do they respond? What I want you to notice is this, this woman's not offended at all, watch. Fell down at his feet, begged him some more, please cast out the demon, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. She agrees. She agrees. Do you see it? She agrees. What does she know? She knows that the statement that Jesus is making is true. She knows that the point that Jesus is making is accurate. You see, the application of the parabolic statement is hand, bear with me now, put on your thinking caps, actually has two probable applications. The first of which is the most immediate in the room context. And if you work with me on this, notice Jesus gets away with his disciples. Let's get away to a desolate place. He's been saying that for a while. He's finally in the room. He's probably training his disciples some more. Maybe he's talking about that region. Work with me on this, right? He's with them in the room. In comes barging in this woman. The word that I want you to see and the word that I want you to grasp is the word first. Let the children be fed first. I'm feeding my disciples right now, and I want them to be fed first. For I, I need, this is why we've come. I've got to make sure my disciples are fed first. And the word first is not a word of exclusion. It's a word of sequence. Listen, it's not right. It's not right for me to turn my attention now from this now to that because up to this point, how has Jesus gone about healing people and casting out demons? What was she asking him to do? To get up out of his seat and to go with her where her daughter would be, take his attention, come present there and tend to this matter. So I think one probable application to this text could be the immediate at hand. It's not right for me to turn my attention to the feeding of the children. We know time and time and time and time and time again, feeding has indicated the teaching of God's word, hasn't it? It wouldn't be right for me to turn my attention from the children to this. Hey, you're interrupting here. Let me complete what I'm doing. That's one probable application, but there is a larger, a more all-encompassing application that we know for sure God's Word addresses. Because if you go to your cross-reference in Matthew 15, what you're going to realize is this. Jesus, Jesus has come to fulfill the promises to God's chosen people. 
The children here, for sure, for sure, for sure, Matthew 15 makes it very clear. He's speaking about Israel here. I think there's an immediate context, but there's also this. I've come to reach the Jews. I've come to declare to the Jews. I've come to bring the gospel to the Jews. She would know. The Seraphonician woman would know because she's coming to a Jewish rabbi. She would understand that his first priority in the instruction would be, for Exodus 6-7 says, I will take you to my people. I will be your God. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. The Jews are God's chosen people. And you see, she would also know, she would probably also know, and certainly the disciples would know this, that God's made promises to his people. God's made promises to the nation. And God's promise to the nation of Israel was this. To Abraham, he said, I will make you a family. I will make you a family that becomes a great nation. I will make you a great family because out of this family, I'll reach all families. And out of this nation, I'll reach all nations. And then to Moses... Through the Mosaic Covenant, God made a promise to Moses as well, and he delivered his law to Moses. You've heard of the Ten Commandments? And God made a covenant of laws with Moses. He promised then to Moses, I will make you a kingdom of priests. I will make you a holy nation. And as you go forth as a kingdom of priests, as you go forth as a holy nation, I'll reach the other nations. Then to David, then to King David, you know, the Davidic covenant, he comes to David and he says to David, David, uh, there will be one who comes after you. From your line, from your line, from your line, there will be one who comes. Out of the root of Jesse, there will be one who comes. And he will sit upon the throne and he will establish the kingdom and he will reign forevermore. You see, God is reaching the world by fulfilling his promises to Israel. And what Jesus is saying here is this, I must first fulfill God's promises. I must first fulfill the Father's promises to Israel because in fulfilling the promises to Israel, I will fulfill my promise to the entire world. You see, God keeps his promise. God always keeps his promise. And when you look at a statement like this, like it's better first for me to tend and feed unto the children and not throw the bread unto the dogs or the, to the puppies or to the affectionate ones to come after. What he's saying is this. Listen, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises. To Abraham, Jesus is the son who saves all families. To the law, he is the perfect man who kept every rule. To David, he is the son who is establishing the eternal kingdom. Jesus is saying, I've got to declare to Israel first. For how does the Lord reach the nations lest he first reaches the nation with whom he's covenanted? How does the Lord reach all people if he doesn't first keep his promise to his chosen people? Israel has to come first because God always keeps his promises. And by first, I don't mean exclusively. By first, I don't mean exclusively. By first, I don't mean exclusively. If this passage is going to teach us anything, we're going to see that it's not exclusive but it's sequence. I got to make sure that Israel understands that I am him. I am the one who is to come. I am, I am, I am. We know this to be true. We ought not be surprised, church, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to the Jews first and also then to the Greeks. You see, the missional lessons here are twofold. The missional lessons here are twofold. Here's the first one. Jesus has a deep love for Israel, and so should we. Jesus has a deep love for his chosen people, and so should we. The Lord is not done, and the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. 
Come on, keep your thinking caps on with me. Romans chapter 11 says this. Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. You see, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, but as regards to election, as regards to my promises, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Look, I got to come. I got to let them know that I'm the fulfillment of the promise. I got to let them know that I'm the fulfillment of the promise. Behold, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent. Embrace the king. And they won't. And this will be the mystery. This will be the mystery that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will enter into this day and age. And through the church, he will gather unto himself people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. And they will then assemble together unified under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now those to whom the Jews were initially to reach, they will be the very elements that reach them. How is God going to reach the nations? He made a promise to Israel that I'll reach the nations through you. How faithful is God? And then in the rejection of that promise, God assembles the church in order to all the more keep his promise of faithfulness back to the people that rejected him. This mystery is great. And the second is this. To reach the nations, to reach the nations, we must elevate God's children. We must make sure that we're caring for God's children. We've got to make sure that we're strengthening God's people. For in the strengthening of God's people, then we are able to go then and reach the nation. He's strengthening his disciples so they can be on mission. He was seeking to reach the nation of Israel that they would reach the additional nations. What's the secondary missional truth here? The, se- the secondary missional truth here is this. We've got to be strengthened and we've got to be focused. And if God has reached us first, let us then be looking to who then secondarily we can be reached. If God has reached us first, let us then secondarily see who is the needy among us that need to be reached as well. Look at this woman's response. She's not offended. She's not offended in the least. Yes, Lord. Yet, come on, give her an A for wit, because here it comes. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Touche. This woman is bold. Frankly, I think she's downright brash. But she's in the presence of the Messiah. And she knows this. You don't have to stop what you're doing. You don't have to stop what you're doing. You don't have to turn your full attention to me. For I know even a crumb of the bread of life that would fall upon this floor would be enough to rescue my soul. And I know just a a small glance of your attention would be enough to cast a demon out of my daughter. Look, you go about what you're doing, Lord God. Go about what you're doing, Lord God. But I know this, your grace is sufficient to cover all. And what is Jesus modeling for us? Even as I come and fulfill God's promise to his chosen people, watch my grace flood over the whole thing. Watch my love and mercy engulf this whole globe. But you're going to know that I'm faithful because I'm going to keep my primary promises. Wow. We need not be offended that God has a chosen people. We should be delighted that we have a God who keeps his promises. For now we are among 
They had no idea that the mystery was coming, that the Gentiles would be grafted in, but here in Tyre, here in Tyre, here in the uttermost parts of the earth, Jesus shows them how it's going to be done. And so Jesus says to this woman, Gone. For this statement, you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. Gone. You may go on your way. For the demon has left your daughter. She's not offended, she gets it. We all would do well to get the point that she's making. We all would do well to get the point that she's making. Until we understand that in the fallenness, that in our fallenness, that we are desperate dogs at the merciful feet of our Lord, until we grasp the fact that we, until we truly embrace that we are nothing before the one who is all, we won't be able to fully understand the depth of his mercy. She knew she was unworthy, but she knew that God's grace, that the grace of Christ was sufficient for her. For this statement, you may go on your way, for the demon has left your daughter. In this moment, this woman went from a sinful dog to a child sat at the table of the Lord. When we have difficulty seeing ourselves as sinful dogs, we have difficulty understanding the grace of God and the depth of our depravity. The worship team is going to come and we're going to end on point three today. But as they come, I want to ask you, are you at the table? Are you at the table? But here, Jesus says, yes, I did have to come unto the Jews, but now I am here. And my grace is sufficient for us all. What's not lost on me is that nearly every person in this room is a Gentile. What's not lost on me is that nearly every person in this room is a Gentile. And so often we come to this text and we see ourselves as the disciples. We see ourselves as the disciples. I'm the disciple. 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 But evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives is this. I only became a disciple because I recognized I was dogged in the trespasses of my sins. I was able to sit at the table with the Lord because I recognized that my heart was deceitfully wicked and that I couldn't understand it. The Lord calls me his own now. He pursued after me. God loved me and he sent his son. And my response was possible because the Lord God of heaven reached in and he opened my eyes and he removed the veil and he put beside me, he put before me a feast to which one day we will all sit and partake of. Are you at the table? Have you sat at the table but felt like you've kind of digressed back to being the one back on the floor? Have you felt like a secondary Christian? Have you felt like there's other chosen people among us whom God probably gives his fuller attention? I want you to hear this. God's grace is sufficient for all of us. You see, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I want you to hear this. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he paid for the sin. He paid for the penalty of death. When he went to the cross, the veil was torn. 
And the division was then taken down. And now, and now, church, listen to me. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither bond nor free. But, but we all come now under one faith to the glory of God the Father. God knew, Jesus knew in ages past that you would be sitting here today, that you would be among his chosen. You are among the first now. You are among the first now. You are among the one to whom he's distributing bread. You are among the one to whom has the privilege to feast of his knowledge and understanding. You are the ones. And, but there are those among us who just want a glimpse of a crumb. Let your crumbs fall. Let your crumbs fall. Let your crumbs fall. And as God does his work, you hand over a slice of bread and you demonstrate the grace of gospel because we are on mission and God has a plan for us. Because his grace is sufficient and he always keeps his promises. And so, Father, now we pray. And, Father, now we ask that in this moment that you, your presence would come upon this place. Father, I pray that we would have a proper vision of ourselves today. That proper vision, Lord God, I pray that you would give us a, a rightful vision of who we once were, sinful, lost, depraved in our flesh. But Father, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you came in to us and you breathed life into our frame and you opened our spiritual eyes that we might repent. And we confessed our sins unto you. And we asked you to be the Lord of our lives. God, now we know and we believe that we are part of this mystery called the church. We know, Lord God, now that you desire to feed us unto yourself. God, help us to be on mission now with this. Help us to understand and help us to take this bread of life to those who need it most. May the crumbs fall from this place, Lord God. And may we all feast of your grace and knowledge, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.